This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana, and working from his home back east is Taylor Schwenk, who had a really big day on Tuesday. Yes, Buster. Huge day. (laughs) The Angelos family gone from Baltimore. Not quite officially, but seems to be imminent or is happening at the very least, and we can get excited about it. Huge news for Orioles fans. John Angelos has agreed to sell the Baltimore Orioles to a group led by Carlisle Group uh, Incorporated co-founder David Rubenstein, according to multiple reports on Tuesday. The transaction reportedly values the Orioles at $1.725 billion. Remember, Peter Angelos bought the Orioles for $173 million in 1993. And so the sale price is almost exactly 10 times greater than what they paid for the team. Uh, Taylor, you and I are going to talk more about this, uh, about the sale and what it means for Orioles uh, fans coming up. But I think the short of it is what potential? I I mean, you talk about growth potential for an ownership group. Uh, It's almost, uh, you know, as I wrote in a column today, it's almost like they hit an oil field. With, oh my God! Uh, going in and and buying the Orioles under the current circumstance. I mean, uh, Kylie McDaniel, friend of the pod, ESPN's uh, prospect guru. He has seven prospects in his top 100. Uh, he just released that list today. I mean, what he's got stars already on the roster. Uh, you know, an AL East banner hung. You know, freshly hung. I mean, what it's it's a great time for him to come in and and do some stuff. Do something. Do something. Look, they they have this absolutely loaded with prospects. You know, the payoff of the tanking and, you know, great choices by Mike Elias and his staff. The payrolls basically at nothing. And as I said on the podcast repeatedly last year, the only player on their multi-year deal and the whole roster was backup catcher James McCann. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, frustration for Orioles fans over the last, uh, you know, basically since 1997, with uh, you know, with the exception of last year and a few years under Buck Showalter. So tremendous growth potential for this new ownership group. And as I say, we're going to be talking about that with Taylor. Uh, with Paul Ambikides and with Sarah Langs coming up. Some other news and notes from all around baseball. The Rangers' Corey Seager uh, is going to miss most of spring training after undergoing hernia surgery. Chris Young, the Rangers general manager, says that the hope is by the end of spring, he'll have resumed baseball activity and will be pretty close to full speed at that point. They think he's going to be ready for opening day. The Rangers bolstered their bullpen by adding veteran reliever, David Robinson. The Twins traded all-star second baseman Jorge Polanco to the Mariners, Seattle, looking for some offense. Uh, The perspective of a lot of people is is that the Twins did really well in this deal, in part by getting outfield prospect Gabriel Gonzalez, who is a top-five prospect within the Mariners organization. The Angels agreed to sign outfielder Aaron Hicks. He'll be making minimum wage from the Angels. Of course, his contract this year will be paid by the Yankees. The Tigers, with an interesting signing of of infield prospect Colt Keith, six years, $28.6 million for a player who has not appeared in the big leagues. This is someone who was a fifth-round draft pick when he was selected by the Tigers. Adam Frazier signed with the Kansas City Royals on a one-year $4.5 million deal. The Cubs signed reliever Hector Neris, one year, $9 million with his contract. 
And Jock Peterson last week agreed to a one-year $9.5 million deal with the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Mets bring back reliever Adam Adovino on a one-year $4.5 million deal. And the other day we got word that Justin Turner has agreed to a deal with the Toronto Blue Jays. And one last note, uh, really sad news coming out of Wichita. The fire department in Wichita, Kansas, got a call about a trash can uh, on fire and discovered that what appeared to be in the trash can were pieces of the statue uh, that were stolen from a public park last Thursday. The Jackie Robinson uh, uh, statue was cut at the ankles and removed. Taylor, this story just makes you sick. People are bizarre, dude. I mean, like, it's either like racist S housery or like teenagers like being morons and both are bad. So I really, I hate the story. It's very, very sad that someone would desecrate. It's something very like that. sad. I just, uh, you know, I was thinking next week, maybe we get uh, someone, you know, an official from Wichita to join us, to give us some backstory on this. Maybe someone mm, with police yeah. that, uh, you know, I definitely want to follow up on this. All right. What else you got? Well, Buster, we are talking NFL draft on the College Game Day podcast. That we're, oh, no, we're we've started that. It's draft season, baby. My guy, Matt Miller, who I absolutely love. He was on the show today. Um, and the guys, they also talk a little Sharon Moore being hired uh, after John Hart. John Harbaugh, Jim Harbaugh, a Harbaugh, a Harbaugh leaves Michigan and he goes to the Chargers. So now there's two Harbaugh's in the NFL. You probably don't know that if you if you like baseball uh, like Buster does. Buster knows, but I feel like Sarah, Sarah might not. You might not know that. I'm right. I think she does. Sarah's, you know, broad research. Right. The only question I have is who the Vikings going to take. What pick do they have? Like uh, eight? It's, it's, you know, it's further down. Oh, they were down. disappointingly uh, mediocre in mm. the end. They, they tried like 18 different quarterbacks during the course of the year after Kirk Cousins got hurt. Well, I hear you and Reese Davis are newly found best friends. have been friends for a while, but you guys have elevated, uh, you know, on each other's power rankings. So maybe submit that question for the next pod and we'll get to it, Buster. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> we also have to have Reese on to talk a little baseball because he's a baseball guy. Yes. Baseball tonight with him back in the day. He's a baseball guy. His son plays minor league baseball. Yeah, we should definitely. He's a big Braves fan. Yeah, we need to have him on. College Game Day podcast. Check it out. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com. Or just stop by. 
All right, Taylor, how long have you been an Orioles fan? When was the first time you went to an Orioles game? Um, It was the season that they – it might have been the first year that it opened, the season they hosted the All-Star game because for a long time I had a – I remember going and getting like an All-Star commemorative bat or something, and I remember getting a batting glove too. So really the, or, the Orioles out of all my teams – they're the one they're, that's the team that I connected with first as a youngster. So, uh, you know, basically the entirety of my 34 years on planet earth. And, you know, in those first years, Peter Angelos buys the team in 1993, pays $173 million. I, I, as I, uh, you know, I, I got to know Peter when I was a, a, a reporter covered the team at the Baltimore sun. Um, you know, part of me feels like Peter was misunderstood. You know, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of Orioles fans like think like because of the trajectory of the team that he doesn't care. No, I actually think he cares a lot. Uh, but I think he was he, he was te- really terrible at managing the team. And there's no disputing the fact that his administration, of the team it basically was driven into the ground. Uh, and now, as we sit here today, uh, you know, and from what I understand, next week when the owners meeting takes place, uh, the sale is not far enough along where that's going to get approval by the other owners. But at some point that's going to happen. And my experience, Taylor, uh, in covering baseball is, is that while the deal has not been formally approved, OK, mm-hmm. there are situations where the incoming owners can basically do the wink, wink, nod, nod to the outgoing owners because they've agreed to this monster deal. And I will tell you, there is some people I've talked to about this are like, well, I don't know, John Angelos, you hope he doesn't screw it up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But if, in fact, you know, it looks like it's going to get done, the incoming owners can basically give an approval to adding players, uh, making deals now, uh, you know, and, and basically telling the Angelos family, look, we're the ones who are going to wind up paying these contracts. So we want you to go do A, B, or C. My God, the timing of this yeah. could be perfect for this franchise because the free agent market hasn't really played out. You have Blake Snell available. available. You have Jordan Montgomery available. Uh, you potentially, you know, we know that the, the White Sox are making Dylan Cease available in trade. Um, you know, if you're Mike Elias, you might have been conservative because you didn't know if you're going to be supported financially by ownership. Well, now you can assume the incoming owners are probably going to want to make a splash. Dylan Cease, to me, would be the perfect guy. Like, use some prospect research uh, resources. Go and make a deal for a, a, a Cease because this team is loaded. And you would assume that as soon as the incoming group is approved – uh, that the first uh, order of business for them is to call the representatives for Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson and Jackson uh, Holiday and Jackson Holiday and say, look, we want to do what the Atlanta Braves have done. We want to lock up a bunch of guys long term. What's it going to take? Can you imagine the reaction from the fans like yourself if they are able to do some of that, any of that, all of that? I mean, some of it, dude. I mean, we're, we're sitting here. I mean, it's, you know, it's still, we're on the cusp of February. There's still time before the season, but like there's been no moves. There's been no signs of any moves. I mean, I, Michael Elias is doing a great job and we need to give him credit, but you know, he said the, the liftoff thing last year and you know, we, maybe we put that at his feet. Maybe it's on, at ownership's feet, but he said it and they didn't really do anything. So as no. of right now, we don't have like a good indicator that they'll 
actually, I like you leading, reading the tea leaves. You made me shudder a little bit with the uh, with the John Angelos of it all. You know, it, you're saying, oh, maybe you know he could give the green light to the the new guys, but I could also see him being meddlesome in in some ridiculous way. I mean, down to the you know, if this is going down, I mean, he denied that this was happening as recently as December. To call the governor of the state and said it's not happening, and, and now it seems like it is. So. If they did anything, if they did all those things, I'd be I'd be jazzed. I mean, we're going to we're going to hear from everyone today about what they think the Orioles should do. First thing, if they were the, the ownership group, I mean, damn, dude, they, they, they should sign Jackson Holiday. If they're worried about money, sign him, you know, sign him to who, the, the Tigers. They signed that prospect to like an eighty six million dollar deal. Like, do do that. I mean, if that's that could be like low hanging fruit, which would be amazing. Which player uh, available right now would you want the Orioles to go and get, you know, a free agent, a, a trade target? Which guy would make the most sense for you? Man, I think I think I probably lean Jordan Montgomery overall. So then after Jordan Montgomery, I think I'd probably in this little power ranking here, I'd probably go Dylan C's. I, I think it's definitely time to cut some of these prospects loose. I mean, the infield in particular is pretty loaded. Um, you know, they've got some younger guys in the outfield. I mean, the outfield is kind of squared away at the moment. So, uh, you know, they've got some got some wiggle room. And in all of this, they've got great position players. But the pitching, the pitching, the pitching, the pitching, it's always been the pitching. You know, even back in the 2014 season, it's always been the pitching for the Orioles. Let's go out and, and, and finally do something about that. And if anybody's skeptical about this concept, and, and look, I mean, maybe John Angelos doesn't go along with it. Mm. Uh, but if they're far enough along where they have an agreement and they feel like it's definitely going to get done, that reminds me of that situation when I was covering the Padres back in 1993. They had the you know the fire sale of all their star players. And then at the end of the 94 season, they were well on their way to being sold. And Randy Smith, general manager at that time, began to talk to the Houston Astros about a massive trade, okay, that in the end netted the Padres Steve Finley and Ken Caminiti and other guys who were part of the Padres when they played in the World Series just four years later. You know, the incoming ownership will say, hey, please go and do this. Let's try to make the team better uh, if we feel like a deal is going to be made. The same thing happened with the Dodgers. You know, when uh, the Guggenheim Group bought from the from courts, basically the Guggenheim Group funded all these massive deals that they made. You remember that huge trade they made with the Red Sox, mm -hmm. where it's like Adrian Gonzalez <laughs> yeah. and David Price and all that? So this sort of thing can happen. And it'll be interesting with the current market, which is unique, you know, to be in the beginning of February, basically, and to have a lot of really good players still available. It'll be interesting to see if the Orioles take advantage of that. And we talk about it all the time, Buster. I feel like I say it on every single podcast when we talk about or the Orioles and free agency and who are they going to get? Like the time is now. Like you can't like last year not getting you know any quality pitching was was you know a, a misstep. I think so to continue to not do that. Like if 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 Rubenstein and and his you know ownership group can't come in here and see that the time is now and not to waste those opportunities. This is coming from. Me, a fan who has, you know, really lived through the bleakest times, you know, with this organization, you know, missing the playoffs from 98 to 2012. I mean, the you know, when the Angeles family owned the Orioles, there was only been three division titles in 20, 30 years, excuse me, 30 years, three division titles. That stinks. So when I'm talking about it, I'm pounding the table, I'm saying it over and over again, take advantage of the moment. I, that comes from a place of 
not even knowing what the moment was. I mean, there there was no there was no moment to take advantage of. There was just bad baseball and you know uh, disinterested ownership. So please, David Rubenstein and and friends, like, please hear our cries because it, the time is now and it could be a lot of fun. You can make a lot of money. Um, you know, it'll it'll be it could be worth the investment. Could be worth it for you guys. You might feel like then that my that my line at the end of the column I wrote for ESPN.com might be a little premature, but it is the Orioles are back. <sighs> I hope so. I mean, like it, everything is set up for a comeback for, yes. uh, you know, I, I just it's so exciting. Last year was so exciting. And the hang up, the hang up has been ownership and the refusal to spend. It's always yep. been like this. Go back. I mean, like I would I think John Angelos on his way out, you know, he'll be like, oh, you know, we did X, Y and Z. And between 2012 and 2016, we had the most wins in the AL. Uh, I mean, they could they didn't they didn't spend on pitching. I mean, and that's what doomed them. Like you can't you, you got to play the game, Buster. And they've refused to play the game outright. They've played footsie with the game. They got to be all in. The new ownership group has to be on. And I'd imagine if you're buying a baseball team in 2024, like that's probably why you're doing it. If you're spending that much money on it. Jumping into the numbers. numbers. This is Himbo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Oh, I jumped our own sound. Like I've never heard it before, Hembo. Uh, Paul Ambicades, uh, of course, Hembo is the highest paid researcher in the history of baseball, $701 million deal that'll pay off in like 120 years. Uh, Hembo, so the conversation, center of the conversation today is around Taylor's Baltimore Orioles. Uh, I texted someone in baseball this morning that this is, you know, to be the owners following the Angeloses is a little bit like being the shortstop to follow Mario Mendoza. What do you think? I think that's a great comp. I mean, there could be no better comparison than that. When you consider the approval rating of the Angelos family in Baltimore, because all you have to be, not them, right? That's that's the only thing that you have to promise if you are new ownership. I actually went back to 1993 to see what people were saying about the move when they bought the team 30 years ago. And hilariously, Maryland's governor at the time, uh, a man by the name of William Donald Schaefer, you might recall, said he'll put the he'll put a ball club on the field, spend money and make us proud, which is pretty hilarious because the only one of those three things he did was put a ball club on the field. <laughs> um, when you consider the Angelos' tenure, that, that's that's where that's where things are over the last 30 years. I think it's been uh, generally speaking as one who uh, was born in Baltimore, who came to age uh, in the shadow of of Cannon Yards, who adored that franchise and still loves it from afar, I can say that there's very few things that people in sports can rally around, more so than mutual hatred and resentment of an owner. But the Orioles and their fans most certainly can commiserate with that when it came to the Angelos family. And I will defend Peter Angelos, I think, more than most because I knew him, you know, talked to him all the time. Uh, I always felt that what made him strong turned out to be his great weakness you know this incredible self-reliance that you know through that allows him to put himself through law school after tending bar and he builds this incredible law firm with no partners except for him and you know the turning point of the Orioles history for me will always be under Peter Angelos will always be July of 1996 Pat Gillick who later would make a speech at Cooperstown as one of the best executives arranges trades of David Wells and Bobby Bonilla uh, and beat, and Angelo steps in and vetoes the trades and says, you know what? I can't do this. We've got all these. we got these sellouts. We have these fans are coming to the park. We have to give them a product uh, on the field. We're not going to essentially uh, blow it up and do a modified uh, rebuild in the middle of a season. 
And the worst thing that could have happened to that franchise happened. And that was that the Orioles rallied, they made the playoffs, and thereafter, from, from the perspective of Peter Angelos, the baseball experts, and he would use that word to me with some degree of mockery, uh, he never trusted them again. And the franchise descended from that point. But Peter cared. He just uh, he, he was not good at administrating a ball team. All right. If you were the new owner of the Baltimore Orioles, you were coming in uh, and you got the wink, you uh, you got the gave the wink, wink, nod, nod to the outgoing ownership about adding a player immediately. Who's the one guy who jumps out to you that you would add right now? My goodness. I mean, that's that's such a that's such a challenging question, because I'm not exactly sure what kind of payroll structure they're going to have. I'll answer the question, but before I do, no, you're, paying, I wanna... you're paying for it. You're the incoming owner. You can set, you can say, Hey, you know what? We, we basically have no payroll obligations. We have a blank yeah. slate. Who's the one guy in the free agent market or in the trade market. You can, you know, do the wink, wink, nod, nod with the outgoing ownership and said, go get this guy. Cause we're going to try to win and make a splash in our first year. Yeah, I mean, in terms of free agents available, I think that Jordan Montgomery would be someone I would be willing to, to to sign and give big dollars to because I think having a workhorse at the front of that rotation would be an outstanding move. Candidly, I think their uh, pool of position players is in a great position. I would consider a Pete, uh, Pete Alonzo trade just because I have the prospect capital, but it's only one year and it doesn't make you know all that much sense. I'd be really interested in signing Juan Soto next offseason and making that kind of splash because, wow. but, uh, you know, l- listen, Buster, I think if there's, Look, Taylor can Taylor can attest to this. Like, if there's anything that has been proven time and time again in recent years, it's that Orioles fans don't feel like ownership wants it as badly as as they do because they're not willing to pay. Right. So what I did was I broke down the Angelos tenure into sort of three different time periods. Okay, because they went from being a big market team to a medium market team to a small market team during the first yeah. seven ownership seasons. They spent four hundred and six million dollars in payroll dollars. Buster, only the Yankees spent more during that time. Then from 2001 through 18, the Orioles spent $1.7 billion in payroll, which ranks 16th in baseball. But over the last five years, it's $266 million, and no team in baseball has spent less. I think if there is anything that ownership needs to demonstrate from day one, is that we are willing to make a financial commitment to the city and to its fans. If the Orioles fans showed us anything this past year, they came out in droves to watch a young team exceed expectations, win 100 games in year one, and bring energy back to that city and back to my favorite ballpark in the American League, right? It was an absolutely joyous summer in Baltimore. They're there for it. What you need to then do is say, we will meet you halfway. And for the first time in in multiple generations, be willing to spend with our peers the way that the Yankees do, the way that the Red Sox do, the way that the Blue Jays have been uh, shown that they are even willing to do so i think buster i'm not saying that there's a wrong answer to this because you can uh, certainly spend money uh, spend money badly but that level of trust needs to be rebuilt and it might take some time but it starts with demonstrating that we are willing to spend money on payroll which has been the fans biggest gripe over the last several seasons yeah i completely disagree with you it'll take no time to build that trust really because you are following mario mendoza right Mm -hmm. in terms of how low the bar is if you sign this is what i wrote in the column if they sign one of these three superstar young pros- players, one, either either Adley Rutschman uh, or Gunnar Henderson or Jackson Holiday, you sign one guy, you have distinguished yourself from an ownership which last year had one player under multi-year contract. And that was the backup catcher, James McCann. Okay, And if they sign all three, I wrote this, if they sign all three to long-term deals, 
they may rename Calvert Street to Rubenstein Way. Okay, like, I mean, the owners will be the, the ultimate heroes in that city if they come in and make a splash. What an opportunity for them to be, uh, you know, the conquerors of Baltimore as they come on board. All right. Uh, you made a prediction for ESPN.com about a top prospect. Who would that be? That, that would be Evan Carter, who came on um, like a bandit in the playoffs last year he debuted on september 8th in between the regular season and postseason on base 415 and slugged 574 across 40 games buster and i think the prediction i'm going to make is as follows he's going to walk a hundred times this year and winning the rookie of the year which would be unprecedented at 21 or younger only three guys have ever done that it's juan soto it's mike trout and it's ricky henderson but from a <laughs> process-based standpoint I and mean, we're talking about like the best of the best I and mean, we're talking about like three all-time great hitters over the last 90 years, right? But over the last, excuse me, uh, last season, among uh, 463 hitters with at least 100 plate appearances, he ranked in the 98th percentile in walk rate, 99th percentile in uh, chase rate, and 99th percentile in the percentage of plate appearances that reached a three-ball count. You and I both love this attribute of his game, the, the control of the strike zone that is that is not only wise beyond his years, but so far beyond what so many players in baseball that might play for a decade can ever, can ever um, have. That, I think, is his greatest attribute, and I think it's the kind of thing that's sticky, which is to say there's no obvious reason to believe that that's going to be a skill that regresses. So I'm predicting a 100-walk season from Evan Carter, who's got a profile that I just absolutely adore. What say you? I I feel like it's almost a slam dunk if he stays healthy. Like, okay. I mean, he just stands out. You know, Juan Soto was a patient hitter uh, when he was a you know nineteen or twenty year old, and it feels crazy to say Evan Carter has more patience and probably a better understanding of the strike zone than Soto did at that age. I'm not saying he's going to be better than Soto, but sure. that particular part of his game, I think he uh, he's already better than uh, than Soto was at that age. All right, the Blue Jays signed Justin Turner to. Uh, you know, to a deal, uh, $13.5 million. What do you make of this? Because the thing that jumped out to me was the fact that, yes, another right-handed hitter. I cannot believe they're not paying Brandon Belt. It's a very bizarre signing if it's not paired with anything else. Like, if you're right, to sign right. Justin Turner to platoon against lefties and Brandon Belt to platoon against righties, what you get is a slash line of 893 last season, which is a middle-of-the-order impact bet, which is what they desperately need. But it's such a heavy right-handed lineup. I mean, you can't go into a season, be a serious baseball team, and have Kevin Biggio and Kevin Kiermeyer be your only regular left-handed hitters, Buster. You just can't. It's not, it's not tenable. And I think the point I want to drive home here is that we have now two seasons in small sample size, but two seasons of sort of proof, proof of concept as to how desperately the Blue Jays need to improve this attribute of their team. So obviously last uh, in, in the postseason the last two years, Swept in both rounds. And I think the biggest reason why is because they just couldn't touch like elite right-handed pitching. All right, it's Luis Castillo, Pablo Lopez, and Sonny Gray. Those were the three guys that really got to him in the last two postseasons. All right, those three guys faced 74 Blue Jays. They allowed one run. They allowed zero extra base hits. The Blue Jays can't wow. even fake it against right-handed pitching and especially against elite right-handed pitching. It was an 89-win team last year. But they averaged 5.8 runs in those games, which ranked 27th in baseball among all teams in their wins, which is to say, in order for them to be good again, they're just relying on such like consistent, high-level pitching, and that's such a high bar to clear. When I look up and down this lineup right now, Buster, what I see is a team that's basically going to need Vlad Jr. to be an MVP-level hitter 
in order for the team to have a chance to win its division or even fake it to get close to that point. And that's a really difficult thing for me to do is to say, okay, a player needs to hit his 90th percentile outcome for our lineup to be good enough. Right now, this is a team that is, I would say, considerably worse than they were a year ago. And last year, they were considerably far off where they needed to be to be an actual pennant contender. What do you think? So, well, there's no doubt I agree with you. Uh, they tried, from what I understand, they were trying like crazy to find a way to make it work with Jack Peterson because they wanted a left-handed hitter. Uh, but as you just mentioned, you know, you were talking about, you know, you need a complete player, uh, complete, you know, right and left-handed uh, balance mm -hmm. from a position um, which is why, to me, as we sit here in this moment, they need to go get Brandon Belt or they need to go get Joey Votto. And from what I understand, Joey Votto is feeling super healthy. We were talking about Evan Carter and his understanding of the strike zone. That's something that's within Joey Votto's history. Yeah. Like if, I'm, if I determine, if I were a team and I could determine that Joey Votto is healthy, you know, ask his representative, let me go see Joey Votto hit in a cage. If he showed to me that he was healthy, even at 40 years old, I'd take a shot at him. Because they need balance desperately. And as you know, Joey Votto is a Toronto kid. Let's go. It would be a perfect baseball storyline. And I do think that he would make a meaningful difference. What I'm not sure, though, is if Joey Votto and Justin Turner provide them the kind of clout that they actually need to make up the ground that they need. And that's why I still I think that the Blue Jays make sense as a potential Pete Alonso team. I really do. Now, obviously, he's not a lefty, but I don't think it really matters because he mashes both righties and lefties. But for one year, right? Right now, you don't have Vlad Jr. signed to an extension. You don't have Bo Bichette signed to a long-term extension. I don't really believe in traditionally like windows the way that some do in baseball. But if you're looking at this as being sort of a, a moment in time where you have a legitimate chance to push for a pennant, that, honestly, Buster is the kind of bat that you actually need. And if there's a way to get him to pry him away from the Mets and 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 not give away their top pro prospect, Ricky Tiedemann, I think that's something that they would have to consider long and hard, even if you have to sort of pull an arm and a leg and overpay for just one year of somebody, because that's the kind of hitter that could actually catapult them from being an average lineup to a good one, whereas I think you know the Justin Turner, Joey Votto types merely kind of improve them along the margins. Yeah, and I would agree with you. I, like when you think back to 2023, it's absolutely incredible that a team with a rotation that was as good as what the Blue Jays had last year didn't make the playoffs. It makes no sense to me that that didn't happen. Uh, and mm -hmm. a quick note about Brandon Belt. There's yeah. no doubt that on paper the team that he fits the best are the Texas Rangers. He played for Bruce Bochy in the past You've seen the numbers from last year when he was in the lineup. He was a productive player. You essentially would be bringing in Brandon Belt to replace Mitch Garver in that lineup. That'd be pretty good. That would make some sense to me. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's talk about the Red Sox because, you know, our friend Peter Gammons sent out a note this morning, said that Turner's uh, you know, representative uh, reached out to the Red Sox and were basically like, hey, let's work something out. And they're like, nope, we don't want to devote the DH to any individual player. Their offseason is gone from bad to worse, it feels like. What do you think? It sure does. Uh, there are probably uh, you know people within the sound of our voice that are saying to themselves, you can't actually feel badly for Red Sox fans, right? They've had so much success over the last 15 years, and I, 15, 20 years, and I, I agree with that fundamentally. But what I would say, Buster, is that at least lately there has been no team in baseball whose logic trail is more difficult to follow. Yes. than the Red Sox. I mean, from the day that they hired Bloom, the strategy that they have employed, at least from afar, is basically one of dart throwing. Like, you're going to hit the board sometimes, 
but you're rarely going to hit the bullseye. And that's why you wind up trading Mookie Betts for 50 cents on the dollar. That's why you have to pay market value for a homegrown Rafael Devers. It's why you reach for Trevor Story. It's why you trade Chris Sale for 50 cents on the dollar. It's why you find yourself in the kind of position where, like, it seems like their roster building is like playing a game of Tetris. Like, it's very difficult for one move to correspond with the next and vice versa. That's where I stand with the Boston Red Sox. That being said, I, I don't think they're that far away, which is what's so maddening for some of their fans probably because if you were to add a frontline pitcher to this rotation, if you were to commit to you know playing Cody Bellinger in right field and improving your defense and adding a left-handed bat to a ballpark that loves left-handed hitters, I think that's a playoff team. I think they're that kind of close. The problem is it's not obvious to me that this is an ownership group that's more committed to their baseball team than their soccer team. Like I actually like some of the things that they've done, like some of the smaller things that they've done, but when you look and see the, the offseason that the Yankees just had, you look in, at the offseason that some you know, some of the bigger market teams have just had, the Red Sox, this is a fan base that packs the stadium. This is a team that has the kind of coffers to spend money, and they refuse to. And it's a very bizarre sort of team to follow in that sense. Now, that is not to say that they're they're done, and it is not to say that I don't believe in Craig Breslow, because I do, and I, I philosophically think that they have a lot of they get a lot of things right. But a lot of the big things, Buster, I don't know if you agree with my dart-throwing analogy, but it seems to me – like ownership has tied the hands of its general managers, and it's not obvious to me that Breslow was given much more levity than Hein Bloom was. What say you? I agree with you, and I think what's happened is versus dart throwing. I think uh, you know, in describing as dart throwing, the way I've always described it as that since the Mookie Betts trade, mm -hmm. that the organization has over and over and over again been forced to pay Mookie Betts tax. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they didn't add Mookie Betts and they didn't or they didn't sign Mookie Betts and because they didn't sign Xander Bogarts, then they had to overpay. OK, when it came to Raphael Devers, there are so many of the moves. I think they signed Trevor Story because of the the, you know, at a time when the rest of the industry was like, man, Trevor Story's elbow is a mess and we don't want to touch him. The Red Sox, that's the guy they signed for one hundred and forty million dollars. Like it always feels like that they're reacting to the criticism that they get. We're sitting here today wondering, wait a second, based on what you've done this winter, why did you fire Heim Bloom? If this was what you were going to do, why didn't you just keep going? Uh, and, you know, in the end, they might wind up having to either overpay Alex Cora, or they might lose him as a manager. So it always feels like I I've actually thought about reaching out to you and asking you, let's work on a piece trying to financially assess the Mookie Betts tax. What that has cost the Red Sox over the last five years. The refusal to pay the guy, you know, and as it turned out, Mookie Betts wound up getting a deal where he's getting $25 million a year with the, with the Dodgers because there's so much deferred money in it. It's a fascinating concept, Buster. It did sort of portend what was to come because, like, when you have a homegrown star in Mookie Betts that wants to stay and he winds up winning a championship with the Dodgers, that's a tough pill to swallow. When you have a homegrown superstar in Xander Bogarts, right, who gets a market value deal with the San Diego Padres, who wanted to stay at the top of his game, who wanted to stay? It's very, it's a very difficult thing for uh, for the fan base to swallow. And when you compare the Rafael Devers contract to the Austin Riley contract, that's the Mookie Betts tax right there. I mean, the differential in those two dollar figures—that's where the Red Sox are. There doesn't seem to be the kind of trust with high level players and agents in that organization as compared to others and others that prioritize their homegrown people. I think the Mookie Betts, uh, the Mookie Betts tax concept is a super interesting one that we could explore further. No doubt. Yeah. yeah well, we'll absolutely have to. Uh, all right. Thanks for doing this, Hembo. Always great to talk with you. Later friends. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick exactly of Hembo. Right. Zero.
This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how are you doing this week? I am doing great. Every single day brings us closer to the season. I am great. That's uh, and uh, and you're not even an Orioles fan, okay? <laughs> Today is a a day when Orioles fans are are chanting all kinds of uh, songs from the Wizard of Oz. They're so happy. <laughs> You know, they're moving forward. Sarah, I'm going to make you owner of the Orioles for a day, okay? And as I wrote in a piece that's going to file on ESPN.com later, there are so many examples in the past where an incoming owner gives a wink, wink, nod, nod to the outgoing owner because they want to make a splash when they take over the team, okay? Uh, And says, hey, we want to add X, Y, and Z as we come on board uh, and right now, you talk about an opportunity right for a new ownership to add right now. And if you're the new owner of the Baltimore Orioles and you can give a wink, wink, nod, nod to John Angelos to make a move right now after you've agreed to a $1.725 billion sale, who's the guy who's available right now that you would uh, say, go get that guy? I think it has to be Blake Snell. This is a team with so many amazing young position players and some very exciting young pitching. You know, think about Grayson Rodriguez, but the idea of having an established ace going out, paying a ton of money for him because we know that's what he wants and deserves with his two Cy Young. I think having a signing like that Pitching on opening day after a 101-win season would be really something. It really would. And I could see Taylor, like, t- as you were speaking, Taylor, there was tears coming down Taylor's <laughs> face. And he's oh right God. there with the excitement about the about this possibility. All right. So next week, we're going to have uh, an audio narrative about the pitch clock, uh, about the pitch clock and its impact on the sport in 2023. We're going to be hearing from uh, Zach Eflin. We're going to be hearing from Rich Hill, Caleb Cotham, the pitching coach, the Philadelphia Phillies, maybe others as we go through this. But in preparation for that, you prepared some notes uh, on the pitch clock in 2023. What do you got? Number three. Number three is 239. So that was the average time of game in 2023. In 2022, excuse me, average time of a nine-inning game. In 2022, it was 3.06, so already that is a huge drop-off. 2.39 was the shortest average time of a nine-inning game in Major League Baseball since 1985. So I think anyone who thinks that games have really gotten longer lately it was much further back than you might have realized. And I'll say now, and this will proceed the next two, no one, we didn't, get, we didn't see a loss of any actual action. You know, we talked about this early in the season. I was blown away by it even in spring training. When I talk about shorter games, you know me. Everyone out here knows me. I don't want less baseball. A less standing around, less time in between pitches was not even noticeable. And 239 
Average time of a nine-inning game was really, really something. Number two. So number two is 302. So we know games get longer in the postseason, and the pitch timer was in place in the postseason. But even with all the drama and everything else, the average time of a nine-inning postseason game in 2023 was three hours and two minutes. That was the shortest in the postseason since 1992. In the 2022 postseason, the number had been 3 hours and 23 minutes. We had three World Series games that finished in under 3 hours. That had not happened since the 2006 World Series. And again, we weren't missing anything. And I just think of people like my father who gets up really early for work, being able to watch a full East Coast game before going to bed for Anthem. Number one. Number one is 15. Um, we're talking about the pitch timer, so why don't we talk about the violations? So the Mariners had 15 total violations. That's their batters, their pitchers. Batters calling for a second timeout, catcher violation, and we're also including the defensive shift violation here as well. 15 total across the entire season, with 10 fewer than any other team in the major. Now, on the opposite end, we have the Mets with 55, which was the most in baseball. So I think it's important to see that we also saw a team really understand how this works. I know the number of violations by month went down, and players just understood how to play the game within these roles. Sarah, you know, it makes me think that Jerry DePoto, because he was a former pitcher, maybe had a handle on this a little sooner than a lot of organizations did. You know, the the Mariners, uh, maybe they had uh, more conversations about how to prepare. And that's what the audio narrative is going to be a lot about, about the players, uh, you know, perspective on how they adjusted last year and what adjustments will be uh, made going forward. I'd say this too, Taylor, I, I think an endorsement from Sarah Langs of the pitch clock, someone who loves baseball more than anybody, that's pretty good, huh? Oh my gosh! Yeah, have you got Sarah Langs in your camp? I mean, it's it's borderline unimpeachable. She's got the numbers, Buster. <laughs> right. And last week we did a you know we do a hot stove event for my old high school every year. Uh, and as we started, this is not going to surprise you. Sarah was watching. It was like Game Four of the you know the uh, best uh, best of seven series in the Dominican Republic. And I could see like the TV on her face as she was answering questions. She had to absorb that as we were going through that event, Sarah. Yes? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I can't skip the dome. I believe it was actually game six. Game seven was the next day. Very, very key game. But hey, could have been game one. Could have been a regular season game. You know, if there was live baseball that I was able to watch in some way that I've been watching. And I was paying full attention to her awesome panel, of course. I'm very used to just having baseball in front of me and focusing on what is directly in front of me. 
There you go. All right, Sarah, thanks for doing this. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for having me, Vassar. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Bleacher Tweets. Already Buster, Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. Blade Bigler writes in a lot of Hall of Fame talk in these Bleacher Tweets here. Love Beltre. His Hall of Fame is so deserving. Wondering why third base seems so underrepresented in Cooperstown. Yeah, I think, um, first off, uh, you know, they call it the hot corner for a reason. You know, guys taking shots off their bodies um, and, you know, probably have more injuries. And that means less offensive production than you do at other positions. I mean, (laughs) which is why, I don't know, have you ever heard the uh, name Pepper Martin? No. Okay. He was a third baseman with the uh, St. Louis Cardinals back in the 30s. He played the position. He played the hot corner, Taylor, without a cup. Okay, protective cup, and so did Adrian Beltre. Those two guys <laughs> play in that the position. List. Yeah. So, but I, I think it probably comes down to injuries and and not getting as much production. Brooks Robinson is considered, you know, to be you know arguably the greatest third baseman of all time. He didn't have like crazy offensive numbers. He had really right. good offensive numbers, but his his excellence, and I think for a lot of these guys, their excellence is based on defense and their reaction time. You know, that's how, how people remember Nolan Arenado. That's how I think in the end, how people are going to remember Manny Machado. Mm-hmm. Defense first, offense two. Definitely. Matt Coleman writes in, please explain how Jim Edmonds was one and done while Andrew Jones is on track to get into the hall. Thank you, Buster, for a great podcast. Yeah. Th- well, thanks for the, the compliment. Um, I, I think a lot of it doesn't make sense. And again, I'll say it again. I think Harold Baines, one of the great guys I covered. He was a terrific major league player. But once he got in, part of the reason why I was cringing was, oh, man, 
There's so many guys, Dwight Evans, Jim Edmonds, Steve Garvey, uh, you know, Dale Murphy, on and on and on, where now that Harold Baines is in, a question like why is Jim Edmonds not in the Hall of Fame is of absolutely a fair one. The reason why Jim Edmonds didn't uh, advance, of course, past, uh, you know, very in the Hall of Fame voting was because he was, you know, his name came up on the ballot during those years when you had that backlog of all the steroid era candidates. And that it's uh, it's unfortunate. It's why you wish the Hall of Fame would just open it up. Brian Donatich uh, wrote me a rambler on Instagram. I'll speed through it here. He says, I heard Buster mention last year he believes Jorge Posada should be elected to the Hall of Fame by a special committee at some point. He agrees with that. But what about Thurman Munson being overlooked yeah. this long? He's made, no, He makes I, the case. I, he, it goes on for a while. But what do you think about that? Thurman Munson. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Like Thurman Munson, you know, if other guys, you know, we were talking about how um, you know, in Joe Maurer's case, the fact that he didn't have huge counting numbers, I do think that helps a guy like Thurman Munson, just as I think Buster Posey is going to get in, despite the fact that he didn't play 15, 20 years. Last one for today. We'll go to the Stone King. He writes in, I'm not a fan, but why doesn't Blake Snell have a job? Are even the, the front office analytic geeks turned off by his six inning limitation? That's all they seem to want from a starter anyway these days. Is it his price? Is he a bad teammate? No, uh, I have not heard he's a bad teammate. And yes, it is his price. Um, you know, I'm not going to get into the numbers. I haven't chance, hadn't had a chance to vet the numbers with Scott Boris. And I don't even know if he would tell me what the real numbers are. But the perception is he doesn't have a lot of action because of the high price that's being demanded, which you can understand to some degree because he's a two-time Cy Young Award winner. I will say this. It is kind of remarkable that when I talk to people about yeah, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, the pitcher with the Dodgers, who got uh, you know $325 million, and I asked so many team evaluators, hey, what's this guy going to be? Tell you, you know what he's projected pretty much across the board as being? A number three, number two, number three type starter. Interesting. But because he hit free agency at 25, teams are willing to pay. But it does make you wonder, wait a second, Blake Snell's proven he can lead his staff. Yamamoto's, I, I, I don't know. That part doesn't make sense to me. It's mm, a good point. All right, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. Thanks for all the love, everyone. Uh, you know, as soon as the sale went down with the Orioles, I got a lot of tweets in. So great to hear from the listeners um, and keep them coming throughout the next week. We'll be back uh, probably Wednesday, midweek for sure. That's it for today. My thanks today to Taylor. Congratulations, Taylor. What a big day for you. Uh, to Sarah, to Hembo. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something that we need to fight against every single day.